The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. And welcome to the Home Cinema Podcast for February. Coming up, we look forward to the Bristol Sound and Vision Show, discuss the products announced at the Panasonic Convention, and is Smart TV a gimmick or a useful feature? So joining me on the Home Cinema Podcast tonight is Ed Selly and Steve Weathers. Good evening, guys. Evening, Phil. Good evening, Phil. And Ed. Good evening, Steve. With formalities over, um, let's crack on with this month's Home Cinema Podcast. Uh, we covered CES last month, so we promise we will not discuss CES at any point during this month's podcast. It's over, it's done with, it's been discussed. Uh, the one thing we will discuss is products as they come out, uh, but take it from me, there will be no CES talk tonight. Yeah, so taking it over to audio first, um, and Ed's been looking at some rather nice speakers, and I believe that this was an exclusive review because these don't get released till Friday at the Bristol show, Ed. That's correct, Phil. Um, It's a world-exclusive review of the latest product from Guru Audio, who are based in Sweden. Uh, The product is called the Junior, uh, £795.00. Uh, which sounds, it sounds, you think, oh, that's quite a lot of money for a little pair of speakers. But uh, they are built in Sweden, which is not the cheapest place in the world to do business. And they are extraordinarily clever. I don't want to sort of read the review verbatim, but effectively, Guru go about voicing their speakers in a totally different way to pretty much any other brand in the world. Um, and the result is that instead of trying to sort of work against uh, a standard li- uh, living room, uh, the junior is effectively designed to to take into account all the sort of standard fittings and furnishings that might be in a normal UK or European lounge and is voiced to take that into account. And the result is uh, is extraordinary, if I'm honest. Uh, read the review for some of the more, more sort of detailed analysis of it. But truly, um, if you're looking to spend £800 a pair of stereo speakers, I can guarantee almost unequivocally that these will work better for you in most normal rooms than anything else available at or near the price. Uh, and that's that's got to be worth something. And they uh, they look nice, they're well built, and they'll be at the Bristol show, which I'm sure we'll mention a bit later on. They're, they're going to be formally released there on, on the Friday. So if you're going, do make sure that you check them out because they are quite something. Uh, these were tested in a two-channel system, is that correct, Ed? Yes, um, uh, but to make sure that we gave, I gave them a, a thorough rundown, they actually were tested in two two-channel systems. They uh, were upstairs in my listening room for half of the review, but um, given that that is actually, you know, it's been partly treated and is a sort of, you know, acoustically quite a sound environment, obviously they worked pretty well in that. So halfway through, I took them downstairs and put them in my lounge, which is altogether a little bit harder to uh, to get speakers working in. Uh, there's no carpet, quite a lot more reflective uh, surfaces, and it's almost almost a perfect square rather than a rectangle. And uh, the good news is that I got really good results out of them there as well. So. I mean, although uh, the guru sort of put thinking in, uh, including having a carpeted room or at least a room with a rug, if you uh, even if you break the rules slightly and you you can't take everything that they want you to do in terms of positioning into account, they are still extremely impressive loudspeakers. Now, obviously, this is home cinema podcast. Um, so, are these available in a five-one configuration? Well, this is open for debate at the moment. Guru has held off from doing multi-channel packages as yet, but um, sort of uh, shown off the radar um, when I met up with the guys last year. They are aware that some of these um, sort of treatments and performance uh, performance attributes would be very handy for multi-channel, and they have voiced an intention to start looking more seriously at that during 2013. So if the, if they release something interesting, um, I will fight my way to the front of the queue and make sure that you all know about it. Okay, so that's the the Guru Juniors. The review is now up on the website. That's avforums.com forward slash reviews. Uh, Go and read Ed's review there. Um, Sounds like a really interesting product. And like Ed said, uh, they are being released on Friday at the Bristol Sound and Vision Show. So let's quickly discuss 
the show. Now, Steve and Ed are heading along on Friday. It's one of those shows that seems to have run forever. I mean, it's the 26th year of this uh, this year for the show. Um, we used to go along there and take over the business room um, in days gone by as AV Forums. It always seemed to be 80% hi-fi, 20% multi-channel. Two or three years now that since I was last there, has has things changed? Is it more multi-channel now, or is it still the premium sort of two-channel show? No, it's still very much uh, uh, two-channel audio hidden away in all those hotel rooms on this sort of third to six floors of the hotel. Um, it's it's definitely uh, well, certainly my experience over the last four years got a lot quieter. Like last year, I remember being acutely aware that it seemed uh, you know, much quieter than previous years. But I guess, given the uh, fact that Manchester's gone, uh, um, it's, it's pretty much the only uh, sort of AV show now in the UK open to the public. Um, so, in that sense alone, it's important, I think, because I mean, it's still you know, it's good to have a show you can go to and see these products, because obviously we see them uh, for review, so we can see all this stuff and use it at home and things like that. But unless you can go to a demo room, quite often you can't see this stuff. And of course, demo rooms are becoming more and more, you know, rarer. Uh, as more and more retailers in the high street drop out, drop, drop by the wayside. So, um, yeah, it's I think it's an important show. I really do. I, I, yeah, you're right, Phil. It is still very much skewed towards stereo, but I think uh, for a lot of people, it's the only chance they'll get to see some of these products. I mean, for example, the Guru Junior, I'm definitely checking those out because I, I proofed Ed's review uh, this morning. And um, and I thought, wow, this sounds really interesting. Uh, so I'm looking forward to hearing them um, at the show. It's a funny old trope because uh, in terms of attendance, uh, I'm sure they won't mind me saying this, It's he- they, they almost pray for, for poor weather uh, because the, the scenery around Bristol is extremely nice. So if it's a nice day, people go off and, and, and do something, you know, sort of wholesome and healthy. Whereas if it's sort of drizzling with enthusiasm, uh, the turnout at the show itself is generally much better. Uh, the really strange thing from coming at this from a slight a two-channel perspective is that um bristol can't win whatever it does the if if more than 20 percent of the rooms are multi-channel you get the two-channel lot complaining that oh there was far too much home cinema there and obviously from a from a more sort of you know reviewing it from a multi-channel perspective the vast majority of the rooms are set over to to two-channel but all i would say is if you are looking in particular for multi-channel speaker systems, do bear in mind that a lot of the systems that you will hear in two-channel, those speakers uh, are more often than not available in multi-channel configurations. And it can be a very interesting way to start looking, if you like, at stuff, stuff that is off the radar um, in terms of it, you know, it, its multi-channel setup. You can become aware of brands and product lines that you otherwise wouldn't see and then just work out where you can get a demo and, and see if the what it was doing in two-channel can be repeated in multi-channel because sometimes that can lead to some extremely, extremely interesting results. Now, as with any show, um, and Steve hinted at the fact that they're small hotel rooms, it's not really the, the best environment to, to actually make any critical decisions of, over these products. But like you say, Ed, it's it's a good opportunity to maybe hunt out brands that you've never heard of. And and one thing that I, I always noticed at the Bristol show was lots of these companies that, that actually start in garden sheds by people who are just interested in trying to make, you know, the best sounding speaker or the best looking speaker. Yeah, I mean, what what's interesting is... It it raise it, a, a successful show for for a small brand can can genuinely raise awareness quite considerably. Um, and it's interesting what you say about sort of sound quality. Bristol as a hotel, believe it or not, is far from the worst candidate to try and get get a system up and running in. Uh, I mean, there aren't considerably more unpleasant ones to try and uh, try and do that do that with. And it it. It's interesting that if you actually, you know, if you just start comparing room by room by room, you class will will out. You will still hear certain things, even in these fairly unforgiving um, environments, which you know are still delivering a more than decent sound. And the other thing, just a you know, a piece of random advice: if you stand in the doorway, a not only will someone try and walk over the back of you, which will hurt. Um, it will sound a hell of a lot worse than if you actually make it into the body of the room. That little tunnel or sort of hallway at the front of a hotel room is about the worst sort of sonic trap 
that you can you can possibly imagine and everything is going to sound like a bag of spanners if you stand there if you actually make it into the room the chances are stuff that you initially dismissed will sound a hell of a lot better I guess from our point of view, Steve, uh, one of the interesting things uh, with the Bristol show is it, it's sometimes the first opportunity after CES, and I know I promise not to talk about it, but it, it's the one opportunity after the big show to maybe see some of the technology. Now, our, our last show there, we showed off uh, 3D TV, which was brand new. A lot of the public hadn't seen it, and it was a good opportunity for them uh, to actually get in front of a 3D TV and, and actually see what it was like. Uh, this year, 4K, um, the big Sony is going to be there on the What Hi-Fi stand. This is going to be the public's first real opportunity, if What Hi-Fi do it justice, to see what 4K looks like. That's true, Phil. I mean, we kind of forget, like I said earlier, that you know we see this stuff, we review it, we have it in our homes, and, and we take it for granted. And obviously, we forget that most people, most people have not seen a 4K in action yet. I mean, we've seen it. We've seen it at CES. I, I reviewed the LG version of the 85-inch 4K TV before Christmas. So, so we're kind of, and there was, a, obviously we did that um, sort of, uh, Sony event with their TV uh, back at the end of November for AV4 members. But basically, for the majority of people, they will never have seen a 4K TV. Uh, and so, yes, you're absolutely right, Phil. The fact that what Hi-Fi is showing it uh, at, the, at the show gives people a chance to see something that, that is still cutting-edge technology, that is still absolutely new. You know, there's going to be, I think, a big thing this year, personally. Um, so you're right, that, that's another reason why the show is important. It does give people an opportunity to, to experience new technology for the first time. Uh, unfortunately, aside from that 4K TV, looking at who's there, or the, as far as I can work out, there isn't much new on display, and a lot of manufacturers don't seem to be there at all this year, which is, which is a worrying trend. Um, you know, some, of, some of the people that would normally be doing big displays uh, aren't, and... Uh, so, you know, it'll be interesting to see what else is actually on display. I mean, obviously, JVC will be there with, with you know, with their latest range. Um, but overall, I'm slightly concerned that, that a lot of manufacturers seem to be sort of shying away from Bristol this year. Now, Ed, one thing I always notice about, certainly in the UK with these types of shows, is that the audience is from about 35 onwards in terms of age. <laughs> uh, You're being generous there. Being generous. <laughs> 90% male. Um, and when it comes to two-channel, obviously, we've discussed this in the past, that that market starts to die off, basically. Yeah. And if you're not getting the youngsters Literally in... Literally and metaphorically, I think. In this case. Yeah, yeah and, and if you're not getting the youngsters in, you're not showing them what, what things are capable of. And we all know, uh, you know, the way that iTunes has taken over the world, Spotify's taken over the world with downloads and, and streaming audio and so on. Is there going to be a market for two-channel systems? Is this maybe... You know the last sort of throw of the dice for for that market with the Bristol show. It's an, I get mixed messages on this. Um, a number of manufacturers seem to be absurdly upbeat um, and actually and, and are basing this this upbeat sort of uh, perception on the the feedback they're getting from you know sort of post purchase questionnaires and the like that. It's some some companies are are shifting surprising amounts of product to people who are you know might even fill the description of being young, um, and that that has to be celebrated. But I agree with you that um, the people that attend attend the shows uh, generally seem to be uh, somewhat older than that. Uh, whether that's simply because you know you're you know it's at a week. Obviously, some people turn up on the Friday, but you know fundamentally, you're looking at the Saturday or the Sunday. And most people might be thinking, I might have something better to do with my life than traipse around a somewhat ill-lit hotel and wait four hours for a lift. But you know, whether or not that that has has its own effect, I don't know. Whether we should judge exactly who's buying what on the strength of what's turning up to shows is 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 perhaps a, a separate question. But I've I've said this before. Two channel is having to compete against not just multi-channel, but all manner of different forms of entertainment, and it's only only logical to accept that it's going to be a serious interest for a smaller group of people. Alternatively, I don't. I actually think that it's had, in many regards, looking at some of the figures, it, I think it's had its worst, its sort of lowest ebb, and as it becomes a useful way of improving uh, how, you know, if you're already using a computer as a method of listening to listening to music, two-channel is evolving quite nicely to, to be a bolt-on to that. 
Um, I'm, I'm in many ways less concerned than I was, but I don't think that should be taken as anything other than I don't believe two towns going to get bigger, so to speak, but it might possibly have stopped getting smaller at the rate that it has been. You would think, uh, and I haven't been to the show in, in the last two or three years, but you would think seeing that market trend and seeing things moving that way, you know, streaming and so on, um, that more and more manufacturers will be looking at, at product lines that fit in with that. Now, I've, I have noticed that Arcam recently have been... Uh, looking at that market and releasing their own little things here and there. And, and there's a couple of other companies that have been releasing streaming products or docking stations and that kind of thing. Um, is is that where the growth is with, with Two Channel? At the moment, yes, I'd say so. Um, I mean, at, at one point, DAX as a concept were nearly extinct and they've uh, come back with a vengeance Um mainly to to act as the interface between a computer and the rest of your hi-fi system manufacturers are careful not to go to to you know jump in too quickly onto new concepts because if you throw a lot of money at something which turns out to be a flash in the pan you've then got to justify how why you paid for it and, and why you put the investment in but i've got to be honest i've been reasonably impressed at how quickly it's responded as an industry and more more importantly that it's responded with products that are sort of genuinely quite good rather than simply bolting the first sort of usb chip that they could find into an existing product and hoping for the best there's some quite bespoke bits of kit i mean i earlier earlier in the month meridian who you know normally are a serious high-end two-channel and multi-channel company are releasing a computer interface DAC at, at sort of 200 250 quid um, which is, you know, that that's not not to be sniffed at, and it appears to be sort of bespoke engineering as well. So, it, it's encouraging to see people people adapting, and you know, hopefully that that's you know they're, they're actually selling them on to, to the general public because actually obviously that's the, uh, the the final proof of whether it's working or not. One of the things that we discussed uh, a few months ago back in the podcast uh, tail end of last year, uh, you gave up a set of headphones to. Uh, to one of your wife's clients. I did. Um, and we were waiting for bated breath, and we're still waiting for bated breath, on the results of that experiment. You gave her, uh, was it £150? £200, pounds 200 of Atomic pounds. Floyd Super Darts, uh, uh, which I did eventually get back, which I think ought to be taken as a um, as, as a sign that they, they, they had a relatively positive effect. Um, other than the fact that, um, as a lady, she thought that they were ridiculously showy, and that's a quote, um, and really heavy because uh, obviously they're, they're solid metal enclosures. Um, other than that, it was almost nothing, nothing but praise. And having returned those, she has since gone out and I believe I th- this is the the musician in her showing. She's gone out and bought a pair of shoes. Um, you know, and, and is actually sort of using them dual use, both as a sort of stage monitor and 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 as earphones on the move. And I I don't think she'd go back now. And it's 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 you know something that if the opportunity arises, I might try again with with a different pupil. But it if you can get people to actually sit down and and listen to a, a you know a more sort of high end piece of equipment, especially if it doesn't require them to change anything else, they can often be quite impressed at, at the differences that it actually makes. And of course, the headphone market it's still growing. Um, yep. That was one thing that we noticed um, at the start of the month. I'm not going to mention the show again. Um, <laughs> the the you know stand after stand after stand selling or showing headphones, and not just one or two models, but complete lines from you know thirty thirty bucks through to three thousand um, just for headphones. It, it's a huge market. Is this something that, that Bristol could feed on as a show uh, for manufacturers to show off their headphones, have listening stations, that kind of thing, to get the younger crowd in? If they aren't, then somebody needs to, um, you know, start issuing a stern talking to people because you're you're right, it's, it's the quickest of quick wins. Uh, I mean, given that even with the in-ear earphones, if you take them and uh, a carrier bag full of little removable uh, removable rubber boat rubber domes um, so everyone gets a fresh pair you can yeah you can reach an, an absolutely enormous number of people um, it's interesting that um, at the uh, the Whittlebury Hall hi-fi show 
um, which I attended la- late last year, uh, which otherwise was full of, I mean, if you think Bristol's got obscure brands, you, you've seen nothing yet. Um, but one of the ideas it did have is it had a quiet room where all the headphone manufacturers had set up and it was an opportunity to start directly comparing between manufacturers' products. And it was leaping all the way through. Um, so I'm sincerely hoping that people paid attention to that and that something vaguely similar will be be in attendance, if not this Bristol, then then as soon as humanly possible. Okay, so that's the Bristol show. It runs from this Friday, so that's the 22nd through to the 24th. Uh, it is Bristol City Centre. I keep forgetting the hotel name. It's the, um, the Marriott Hotel <laughs> in the centre of Bristol. Now, there's two Marriott's. And and the first year I went, I went to the wrong Marriott Hotel. So there you go. Make sure you go to the right one. It is the one in the city centre. It's uh, Marriott it's, City Centre. Although that's it. If you do go to the other one, it's got an absolutely fantastic restaurant in it. So you know, make I'd, make the best of a bad job if you're there. I, I didn't spend that much time there, so <laughs> I didn't get to try the restaurant. But there you go. That's the Bristol show. It's happening this weekend. Uh, Steve and Ed are going along. We'll talk about it next month. Um, and in the meantime, Steve is also going to write. Uh, a brief report about what was on show so look forward to that that should be on the site uh, the week after moving things along we are going to uh, we're going to talk about audio still but uh, the first half of this conversation is going to be about new TVs because we were uh, in Nice in France uh, just last week for the Panasonic convention 2013 Uh, now these conventions run every year in February and I think this was about 7th or 8th that we have been to. Uh, now, there is a, a full story on the front page of AV Forums as we record this podcast that will be there probably till the weekend um, with all our videos, all the coverage and so on. Now, one of the main talking points, Stephen, and, and um, when I say talking points, the, the Plasma Forum uh, hasn't quietened down yet. It's still lots and lots of people giving their opinions on uh, the products released, but the main product there was a ZT60, uh, which is their flagship plasma for the year, their enthusiasts plasma TV. Uh, it's going to cost just under £4,000, going to be available in May, um, and Panasonic are calling it the TV, which is beyond the reference. Now, I wonder where they get the reference uh, tag from. Did it have something to do with a badge that was given to the VT50 last year? We don't know, but it was interestingly, it was up against the, the old Pioneer Kuro, it was a 600A, um, and last year's VT50 uh, in a room uh, where we could vary the lighting and so on. Uh, lots of people on the forums discussing photographs and video clips of what that yeah. looked like and trying to base an opinion on that. Now, you know, that's about as handy as listening to a high-end audio system over a phone line. Um, it's pretty pointless. The main thing for me, Steve, was that there wasn't any cheating going on there, um, which a lot of people say, oh, well, it was a manufacturer's event, they've got to cheat. Well, we had a look at the TVs. They looked perfectly fine to us in the settings that they were in. And uh, quite interesting to see the new VT60 up against uh, a TV that's now, what, four-year-old? Yeah, yeah, it is, Phil. I mean, I think I referred to it in my write-up on the event as Banquo's ghost. It kind of hangs around... You know, four years after they stop making them, I mean, you, they don't make them. You can't buy them unless you get them off of eBay. They're not supported in any way, and yet there are still owners, you know, who go on and on about. No, that includes us because I mean, you've got one, I've got one. Um, they are fantastic TVs, don't get me wrong, but you know, times have moved on, and um, I think people need to let go a little bit on the old Kuro. <laughs> They, uh, what was interesting, as you say, is that they had a Kuro and they also had the VT50 on either side of the ZT. And, and, they're, and they're being quite uh, bullish by referring to it as beyond the reference. And they had it between two reference-winning TVs, uh, AV Forum's reference badge-winning TVs, the Kuro and last year's VT50. And, uh, and I can honestly say, having had a good look at all three and, and owning a Kuro and having re- reviewed the VT last year, the ZT looked really good. It looked really good. The black levels were was certainly as good as, if not better than than the um, the Kuro, and definitely better than the VT. Uh, the image quality was outstanding. The, the levels of gradation within the image were superb. You know, there was a, a real fine level of detail that was just not apparent on the other two TVs. It looked superb, and um, y- you know, obviously, we cut. That's just based upon what we saw there, I and mean, we have to wait till we get one in for review to really put it through its paces and find out what it's capable of. 
But uh, you know, people have been uh, people have been sort of hoping that Panasonic will deliver the goods as far as uh, an enthusiast TV, a, a real replacement for the Kuro. Um, and uh, who knows? Maybe they finally have done it. Maybe the ZT60 is the, is the TV we've all been waiting for for the last four years. Well, it's interesting because I, obviously I was in Osaka two years ago. Mm-hmm. Was it two years ago now? Yes, uh, it was two years yeah, ago. It was two years ago. Um, <laughs> got to see a lot of the factories, the plasma factory and so on. And then we had, it was almost like a United Nations meeting where you had all the journalists on one side, all the engineers and Panasonic people on the other. And then it was just a basic Q&A uh, session where we could ask absolutely anything we wanted to ask and to be fair to Panasonic at that moment in time they were pretty laid back they answered the questions um, they didn't skip around any of the issues and one of the questions quite rightly was will you ever release uh, an enthusiast TV uh, and the answer was no and it was an emphatic no because at that moment in time they said well we don't think the market can withstand it and that's why Pioneer moved out of the market uh, and we don't think we could make something that was cost effective and it is interesting that this year and speaking to Fabrice um, certainly in the interview uh, the, the, the one thing he said was well we're now at a moment in time where we can afford to do this you know the parts are cheaper than they were two years ago uh, just because there's more development gone on so they, they now think they have a business case to release an enthusiast TV, and they've gone ahead and done that. Yeah, I mean, uh, it is interesting that they, they have made the decision because, as you say, Phil, you know, they they weren't particularly keen on the idea two years ago. The economy is still pretty bad. I mean, they've had a pretty rough couple of years themselves. Um, so, again, a bit of a surprise. I mean, I certainly, to be honest, until it was announced at CES, um, I wasn't expecting them to launch, a, you know, an enthusiast TV. I, I was just waiting for the, the inevitable VT60. Um so that yeah, it was a bit of a surprise, and, and as I said, a fairly bullish move. I mean, they're they're marketing it quite aggressively in terms of saying it's the best of the best. You know, it's beyond the reference. Um, it's expensive to make in some respects. The panel itself is not easy to make, which is one of the reasons why there's only in the UK at least one screen size, which is 60 inches. Uh, I know some people will be moaning, oh, why is it only 50 inch? Well, it's difficult to make. That's a, that's a simple answer, and. Um, that's the, the key element with this new TV is the panel. It's it's not like the panel um, they've been making before. This one, there is no air gap between the front of the screen and and the actual panel itself, which significantly reduces um, uh, reflections and therefore improves um, the ambient light rejection and makes the blacks much blacker. So, you know, th- this is a, a, a genuinely new panel and therefore it is expensive to make and so yeah it is interesting that in the current environment they are launching an enthusiast tv because you know things are pretty grim still um and whilst some elements might be cheaper the panel itself isn't so it'll be interesting to see how I mean, obviously you know they're going to be limited supply and i think that's going to be the interesting point how limited is it going to be because it might well be that it creates demand for itself because you can't get hold of what you know and then people want it even more because it's it becomes something something of a status symbol is it so so uh yeah i mean I, personally um I, I i congratulate them on doing this um be interesting to see here uh how samsung fare as well because that, that they have obviously really pulled out the stops in terms of their plasma um their new f8500 uh, has an all-metal bezel and a you know, metal stand. It certainly looks like they're going for a, a very high-end um, look and a performance. So it could be a bit of a battle royale this year, I think, between those two in terms of uh, in terms of the plasma market. I mean, from the outside looking in, though, uh, the sort of question that immediately springs to mind with uh, 4K sort of the screens, if not necessarily the delivery system, becoming uh, a sort of commercial reality, is it is it a little bit late in the day to okay i have absolutely no doubt in my mind that this will be a fabulous television and it will perform extraordinarily well but uh, it, it sort of wor- it strikes me as being wor- at a price where you know for the people a lot of the people buying it well are they not just going to go all in and, and and you know get themselves ready for the for the next set of resolution requirements well the thing is if you look at the market the way it is at the minute ed there's uh, there's two 4k tvs available at the moment both of which are on the twenty thousand pound side of things um and you've got panasonic releasing an enthusiast tv at four grand so the way the market stands at the minute i don't think it's much of an argument 
Okay, um, but it's got a lifespan, projected lifespan. Is this? A, do we know if it's a one year or a two year? So, I mean, do, you, do we know if it's well, sort of well, they change, they change the range every year. So, um, right. and it works in a two year cycle. So they use the same panel for two years, and then they'll they'll update the panel and and so on. However, with the Z, the ZT, I was about to say ZT, thinking I'm still Ooh. in the states. <laughs> the the ZT, uh, I mean, it's a it's a completely hand built panel, which is why it's going to cost as much as it does. It's why it's going to be a limited edition because there's more work needs to go into it. Um, in terms of 4K, I understand what you're saying there, um, but I still think that I think we're going to get to 4K quicker than most people think. But at the same time, um, in terms of plasma, it, the way that Samsung have done it this year, the way that Panasonic are really pushing it this year, um, I think this is the last big push of plasma. And Panasonic yeah. have, have already said, um, and and their CEO said it to us. Uh, in Vegas, uh, when we asked the question, you know, are you going to put R and D uh, into further plasma generations? And the answer was no. And the reason the answer was no is that they have OLED coming, and they have to bring OLED to market. So all the resources uh, that they can spare up are going to go into OLED, which is going to be a 4K TV. Um, and they're not going to uh, put as much R and D into the plasma lineup. So. I think for the next year or two, I think this is Plasma's last swan song, and and they're doing it in style, and mm. you've, you've got to congratulate them for that. Do you want to say I, I like one again, Ed? Oh, go on then. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna not gonna turn one down if uh, if anyone's listening, but yeah, it's it, it's funny from um from a, a sort of different different manufacturing side when you start producing anything with the word enthusiasts, uh, you know, special edition or or anything like that. Uh, it, it, it broke down into sort of two, two two requirements. It was either produced for an extremely short time, like a single production run, and it sold through as as is, or you basically had to guarantee that it would be around for sufficiently long to act as a sort of halo product to justify the effort in doing this. I mean, obviously, the economies of scale for Panasonic are significantly different, but um, it, it's, as I say, it's just... Um, I welcome its existence. It's just a bit of a it, it, it's a bit of a blindside uh, product for me. I've got to say. So you know, we'll we'll see how it goes. I think it's no question. This is this is plasma's last hurrah. I think you also made a very valid point, Ed, which is is the I think one of the reasons why we're getting the ZT uh, and why Samsung are, are are pulling out the stops in terms of the F eight five hundred is because OLED is taking a lot longer to come to market than they anticipated originally. Um, and and I think that that's given plasma. But before this time last year, we would, we would have been saying, uh, "Plasma's dead." You know, plasma's dead. OLED. We saw OLED in, at CES 2012. Um, you know, it's like, wow, this is incredible. You know, black blacks are absolute black. You know, it's incredibly fast response times. Really wide color gamuts. This this is it's four millimeters thick. This is the future of TV. Uh, plasma's dead. Bring on OLED. And then, of course, a year later, even after we went to the launch of LG's OLED in Monaco back in May of last year. No sign of it, no sign of it whatsoever, because they're almost impossible to make by the sounds of it. So suddenly you're thinking, okay, well, we've got, we're not going to have OLED on the market in any kind of, you know, realistic numbers for another year. We've got to put something out there. <laughs> suddenly, plasma's back. You know, is the bell of the ball again? Um, it's gone from being you know ginger hair stepchild to uh, to the uh, having its dance card filled because uh, I think it's still the best picture quality you're going to get at a reasonable price. For the next two to two years, probably, um, and, and and I think as well. I mean, it's not just us, but I think that there's been a lot of input into Panasonic, um, and probably the same into Samsung from uh, our audience who want a good quality TV. They want the enthusiast TV, and I think because they've had that for the last two or three years, people just saying, "I want this, I want this, I want this." I, I think it's pretty brave on their part, given the you know the economy that we live in at the minute but they've actually said okay well this now makes business sense uh, the costs now mean that we can put it out at a reasonable price um and and it's no more expensive than what the kuro was 4 years ago when it came to market uh, so it's not like they're they're charging you know too much money for it i think it's it's well priced for what it is in the screen size and what it promises um so i i think they've seen it as yeah I, I, I agree with you on the OLED side of things, Steve, but at the same time, I think they've said, right, well, we can do this, and people keep asking for it, so let's see how it goes. And it's going to be there for 12 months anyway. Um, we don't know what next year's going to bring, but it's there for 12 months. 
So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if the enthusiasts go for it, if it performs the way it's it's been hyped to perform, um, and and see where the market is in twelve months. Yeah, and see and see how how much things like uh, 4K come along by then as well, I suppose. But um, yeah, I mean, like I say, Phil, it's it's. I'm really glad that they're doing this, you know, whatever the reason might be. And it's probably a, a combination of factors. But, uh, you know, it's great that, uh, as you say, we, we see we see on the forums, you know, <laughs> on a weekly basis, people crying out for some kind of enthusiast television. So uh, this could be, they could have a, a, an embarrassment of riches this year, couldn't they, between the ZT, the VT and the uh, F8500. You, you could be struggling to find, deciding which one to buy. The 4K question, um, which was raised by, by Ed, so, so let's cover that now. They had the, the OLED, the 4K OLED there. They're using printing technology to make it, which uh, they say is is better than what other people are attempting to do with the technology. Uh, they seem to think they're on a winner there and they're going to be able to produce it and release it next year, um, which was certainly the vibe that we were getting. Um, Fabrice wouldn't go into too many details, but I got the feeling that maybe towards the end of the year, we're going to get some kind of announcement regarding that TV. Also, interestingly in the news, just to take things sidestep a little bit, uh, the BDA, that's the Blu-ray Disc Association, set up a task force uh, this week to look at 4K and how they could deliver that on Blu-ray. So things are moving very quickly in terms of that. Um, so this is you know, rel- relatively recent announcement. Uh, but they're looking at the feasibility, the demand and the impact on the existing technology. Um, and then this focus group is going to come back and say whether it's going to be capable of doing that. So that's another interesting sideline when we're talking about 4K and how quickly that might come. The worrying thing is, Steve, they're also looking at high frame rate. Oh, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I'll have enough trouble squeezing 4K onto a disc, never mind uh, doubling the frame rate. Um uh, I mean, yeah, it's never supposed, isn't it, in a, in a way that they would look at that. But, uh, let's hope they can't do it. <laughs> let's hope there's some kind of reason why they can't deliver it. That, that's high frame rate, not 4K. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, high frame rate, not 4K. 4K, absolutely fantastic. High frame rate, please, God, no. <laughs> so moving things on, uh, obviously other things at the convention, the full plasma TV lineup this year, uh, full LED LCD lineup, which has expanded from last year. Uh, the interesting point there is that they're going to passive... 3D on that entire line, which I guess in a business sense makes perfect sense um, to go that way. It's, it's a cheaper way of doing it. And let's face it, 3D has been a flop in terms of sales. Um, we're starting to see more and more content now coming through, Steve, uh, four years after the after the launch of the technology in the home. But uh, still, it, it still hasn't grasped the, the public imagination. So interesting to see that they've gone with passive for that. Yeah, I mean, we, we've obviously discussed this at length in the past. You, you know, you, you've got two different approaches to 3D. There's active shutter and there's passive. I think when it comes to TVs of, you know, 60 inches and below screen sizes, passive's the way the way to go. As I think the market has generally shown at this point now, a lot of manufacturers have moved to passive, not just Panasonic. Um, because it's, it's, it's cheap, it's easy. You know, I mean, there's no batteries involved. There's no syncing. You just uh, get the glasses, put them on, and away you go. Yes, there's a, there's a reduction in resolution, but on on screen sizes less than 50 inches, for example, you, I don't think you really notice it. From my experience, at least, you don't really notice it. Yes, it is there if you go looking for it, but generally, if you don't notice it, I think it's an enjoyable, very comfortable 3D experience. I think it works well with kids, well with large groups, large families, that kind of stuff. Have your friends around to watch. Uh, the football or whatever or a movie you can have like 10 people watching it with 10 10 glasses and the glasses are you know almost free really if you go and get the real d glasses from a cinema they work with the tvs so there's a lot of reasons why that would be the case obviously when it comes to projection um you, you need active shutter you need the additional resolution really on, on a screen on a large screen size but uh, i can see why if you're a tv manufacturer you, you would want to go with passive but as you say phil it's not been a massive success um for lots of reasons, you know, you could hold a post-mortem on it and, and go through things like lack of quality content, uh, con- um, consumer confusion, uh, A, between active and passive, and also, you know, even when you had active, different manufacturers had different types of glasses, they didn't work with other manufacturers, I mean, they've solved that now, now they've gone for a standardized uh, RF uh, delivery system for syncing the glasses to the to the TV, um, they should have done that at the beginning. 
I mean, that, that was just, you know, a silly thing to do, I think, on the part of manufacturers. But then again, when have they ever been you know, sensible? Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's had lots of reasons why it's failed. But the ultimate um, answer is that people don't want to sit there in their glasses at home. They don't mind doing it at the cinema. They happily sit in the, in the glasses at the cinema and watch a film in 3D. But I don't think most people want to do it when they're at home. That's the bottom line. And as you said, I think once, Phil, you know, if you're watching the football, you can't lie down on the sofa. <laughs> you know, you've got to sit upright. You know, you've got to keep your head relatively yeah. level. Yeah. It, it, it makes it very artificial. Um, and uh, whilst you don't mind doing that in the cinema, where obviously you're sat upright anyway in a, in a cinema seat, I think at home where you want to relax, you don't want to put glasses on. You know, the other thing that, that really surprised me in terms of Panasonic this year is uh, they've expanded the audio side of uh, of of their AV lineup, um, and I guess the message is now getting through with manufacturers because I've noticed more and more manufacturers now introducing sound bars, uh, really nicely designed sound bars that that fit in with their TVs and so on. And Panasonic have done that this year. They're now using streaming and wireless, and also ones that you can fit as uh, speakers at the side of the TV, or it'll come together as a sound bar underneath. Other manufacturers doing similar things. Do you think the message has gotten through that the sound on these really thin TVs is crap? <laughs> that's what, I find it that's somewhat ironic it. that they, that they uh, when you ask them, well, why are you making more soundbars? And their basic answer is because the sound on our TVs is crap. It's like, okay, but you're making the TVs as well. So you've just admitted that you're making TVs with terrible sound. Yes, the sound is terrible. Interestingly, um, I've just reviewed uh, uh, Philips TV and they built the speakers into the stand. Uh, it was quite an interesting approach. And as soon as I turned it on, I thought, hang on a minute, this this sounds better than normal. I mean, I, yeah, I've got to the point now where I'm expecting it to sound rubbish uh, when I'm reviewing a TV. And if it doesn't, it's, it's that's the uh, unusual phenomenon. And as soon as I turned it on, I, I thought, this sounds pretty good. This this is weird. And you know, I had to start looking into where the speakers actually were. I hadn't realized they were in the stand. Um but it did. It, it sounded excellent. Really good quality sound. And, and I think it's, it's, it's a shame that, you know, that's the point we've got to now where I, my default position is it's going to sound rubbish. Um, and if it doesn't, I'm surprised. But the reason but, yeah. for this is painfully obvious, though, isn't it? It's a for your convenience moment. So you ask Joe Public, would you like your television to be thinner? And the obvious answer is, well, yes, of course I would. What what could be better than that? The question is never, would you like your television to be thinner at the expense of its ability to actually produce a, a sound which sounds like a human <laughs> voice? In the same way that you, an airline says, would you like your flights to cost less? They don't say, would you like your flights to cost less? We'll fold you into an ever smaller space and not feed you anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about asking, essentially, you ask a very staged, very fixed question and to hell with the repercussions elsewhere. Yeah, But I, I think the positive thing uh, is that manufacturers are taking that on board. And the other thing is that they're designing the TVs. So when they come to design the, so the sound bars that go underneath the TVs, they get the design bang on. So it looks like an extension of the TV or it has the same... Uh, design flair as a TV and so on and that's got to appeal more to the public and hopefully that'll get more of the public actually buying these devices and getting better sound from their TV because I don't know how people can buy one of these LED side lit or you know the side lit TVs and then listen to it because I've reviewed these things and, it, and it's like, oh, that's terrible. And it depends on what you're watching, doesn't it, Phil? I mean, if you're just watching the news or something like that, you can get away with it. But once you start trying to do anything critical, so, you know, if you watch a lot of movies, you, you have to do something about it because, yeah, it is it is just tinny and there's no, it's, they're just, so some of them are just appalling. You kind of beat the but, laws of physics. That's the problem. No, you well, know? yeah, that's, so that's the thing. But if it's going to encourage more more people, and I think, you know, looking at Panasonic's new line, looking at some of the other TV manufacturers who are now introducing sound bars that uh, appeal because the design fits in with the TV design, I think that's got to be a positive step, uh, Ed. Oh, no, I completely agree. Um, and also, it's done with a, a nod that it's, it's a nice logical thing to offer to retailers as well. You've got lots of televisions in, in, in an open space, and it's like, well, obviously, the you know the, the picture on this one is slightly less hilariously orange, thanks perhaps to Satup or something like that. Uh, and then you can go, well, okay, television costs X. Are you interested in making it sound a bit better? If so, sat unobtrusively under this one, for example, is soundbar A. 
Uh, it's made by the same manufacturer. It works seamlessly with the product. Are you interested? And it, you know, obviously the outlay is, you know, it, it's not completely invisible, but it's not that that sort of high and outside. And, you know, as you guys say, it makes an incredible difference to, to actually living with these products day to day. Yeah, totally. And of course, the designs are getting cleverer as well. So uh, it's not a case that, that they won't fit under the TV. It, one thing I noticed looking at the new range of the Panasonic TVs was that they were up a little bit higher on the stands than normal. And that makes perfect sense because the soundbar fits exactly underneath it. Um, yeah, if you go with their soundbar. So it makes complete sense and it's good to see manufacturers doing that. It's it's good to see them trying to push the consumer because at the end of the day, it's the consumer that benefits. Mm. Um, and if, if they're getting a little bit better sound from a soundbar, then you know, you're know you going to get a handful that are maybe going to say, well, this is good. I wonder if I can get even better and add some speakers and surround sound and, and, it, and it moves from there and it gets them further up the product line. So... And yeah. equally, yep. people who are already committed uh, to decent home cinema or, or de- at the very least, decent external speakers, when you're buying these all singing or dancing screens, at the very least, you're not paying for technology that you're barely going to use. So, you know, if the, it's to the extent where you're almost buying a monitor. You've got something with speakers, which is enough, for example, to get you the breakfast travel report in the morning, but nothing more than that. But that's perhaps all that you need if you've already put the outlay in on a decent AV system. Yeah, totally. Uh, so let's move it on quickly because we want to get on the smart TV because we promised that we we're going to do that this month. Um, and it's quite handy that we were at Panasonic. Uh, so just to wrap up on that, they've got a new system now called uh, My Home Screen. Um, good name and a big improvement on what they were releasing last year, Steve, which was basically Viera Connect and it was button push after button push after button push to find the stuff that you wanted. Now having everything as your home screen and with a camera that recognises you when you sit down and knows what content to put up onto the TV... Um, some, well, yeah, possibly. Some, Although some, my experience with that is that <laughs> unless there's a lot of light in the room, it doesn't recognise you, yeah, and half the time it doesn't recognise you anyway. And what does it do if two people sit in front of the screen? And what happens if two identical twins sit in front of the screen? <laughs> that can really confuse it, isn't it? Well, if that happens, if you, yeah, if you want that yeah. to be tested to destruction, I am married to uh, to a, my wife is an identical twin. Uh, I would be be happy to uh, see if we can uh, we can test that one to destruction. Oh, we could take the con- <laughs> we could take the conversation off on on completely different tangent there, but we won't. Um, so smart TV, I, I guess the point I was getting at, Steve and, and Ed, is that manufacturers have been listening. They've been trying to do the smart TV thing and some more successful than others. Um, but it seems to be now that it's moving a little bit away from being a gimmick, which I think most people saw smart TV as just a gimmick, um, to being something that, that's maybe a little bit more worth worth their time. Um, with the different apps that are now available on all the different systems and the way that you can lay it out. Um, a nice thing with the Panasonic TVs is that they have dual tuners. Um, so you can, you can, looking through the EPG, you can actually see the program that's running as well as watching what you're watching at the minute. I mean, it's all really nicely laid out and some thought has actually gone into it this time around. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, the the, the Panasonic platform that, for this year is somewhat reminiscent of, of uh, Samsung's from last year. I think I think Samsung's. Pla- I think we all pretty much agreed in terms of having reviewed them all now that, that the best of the bunch was Samsung's. They, they had a really intuitive and well designed and well laid out um, uh, smart TV platform, and they, they had a centralised homepage with everything on there, so you could go from that one page and get to everything else. LG has something very similar, obviously, um, and that's kind of. Been, they've been leading the way in terms of smart TV uh, and everyone else is following suit this year by the looks of it, and certainly Panasonic are. I think my personal opinion on smart TV is twofold, really. One, it, one is that uh, manufacturers are putting my emphasis on it because they they haven't got anything else to sell us right now. I mean, OLED's taking longer than they thought, 4K's a bit down the way, um, 3D hasn't been a success. So what, what have they got left? It's smart TV. That, that, that's the thing they can push. And they have been for at least the last two years. Which is fair. I understand that. Obviously, they've got to sell something and that's the thing they've, they've got at the moment. My personal opinion is uh, certain elements of smart TV are incredibly useful. Other elements are, are kind of solutions to problems that I never knew I had in the first place. 
um, you know, I, I don't, maybe it's because I live alone, but I don't really need to share content on, on a TV all the time. I don't want to show my photographs on there or videos or anything like that, but you can do that. But for me, TV inherently is a passive activity. You, know, you watch a television and therefore the, the content or the video, the smart, sorry, the, the smart TV features that relate to what a TV is inherently for makes perfect sense to me. So video on demand obviously is key and is by far and away the most popular element of smart TV at the moment. And that makes sense because it's a TV and you can, you can watch video on it so you can catch up things like BBC iPlayer, you've got you know, Netflix or you, um, YouTube or, or uh, Love Film, so you can watch video content and that, that, makes, that makes sense. There's also things like uh, both LG and Samsung do it where you can... Uh, you know, you can stream 3D content. So we've been talking about 3D not being very successful because it's a lack of content. Uh, well, they're providing 3D content via their smart TV platform. Again, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, sh you know, sharing, um, you can, on some of the new platforms, the new remote apps rather than the platform themselves, you can, uh, if you're watching TV, live, live TV, you can send it to your tablet so you could watch it on that while you're maybe making a cup of tea in the kitchen. Again, that kind of makes sense to me. That, that, that's TV extending its abilities to another device. Um, do I want to you know, surf the web on my TV? Not really. And partly because it's, it's difficult to do that because if you're using the remote control, it's very clunky and inconvenient. Then um, they'll say, well, that's okay because you can use the remote app and use your smartphone or your tablet and use the keyboard on that to surf the net. But yeah, okay, but if I've got a tablet in my hand, I may as well just surf the net on the tablet. Uh, you know, going to the TV just seems like adding another layer I don't really need. So some elements of smart TV I'm a big fan of, some elements I don't really need, and some of it I just don't get. Um, maybe that's just my age, but. Uh, yeah, that's that's my personal opinion, my take on, on, on smart TV. Well, Neverborn on the forums, uh, we asked this question last month, so um, some of our members have given us their thoughts on things. Uh, Neverborn picked up on that one, you know, if he's got a smartphone or a tablet in his hand, it's faster uh, to do what he wants to do on that while the TV's playing. I, I totally agree with that. Um, when it comes to surfing the web or Twitter and that kind of thing, I don't want my tweets appearing up at the side of the TV. I don't see the point of that at all. Um, but if I've got my just, tablet... Just, just to interject, there is one time, and I'm going to uh, uh, release a, a torrent of abuse by saying this, there is one moment where that is probably absolutely magnificent, and that will be later on this year at the Eurovision Song Contest, because Twitter is what makes Eurovision what it is. <laughs> so that <laughs> is the only time... Uh, just thinking out loud that you could possibly ever justify that as being remotely useful as a counter. Yeah, but if, if you're sitting with your tablet in your hand anyway, and the TV's on, and you've got the full screen of the TV on Eurovision, isn't that better than having the tweets popping up at the side? I don't know. It's the visual brilliance of it going. At, so, you know, when when the Armenian lady looks like she, you know, dressed in the dark, and it's just going at the same time on the same screen. I don't know. I think I think that could have a certain a, add add a certain something to the inevitably very very drunk Eurovision party atmosphere. Because let's face it, nobody watches it sober. <laughs> yeah, well, that that is a good point. Um, it, you know, like Steve said, and I agree with Steve. If it's if it's an extension of what TV normally does like video on demand, iPlayer, that kind of thing, then, yeah, I mean, I use iPlayer a lot. Admittedly, I use it through my Skybox and not the TV, but um, that makes a lot of sense. Pe people's viewing habits have changed recently in the last few years. I mean, a lot more people now time, time shift than actually sit down and, and make time to watch actually, a TV Phil, program. Actually, Phil, it's interesting you say that, because I, I was reading an article about that. You know, in, in the States and in the UK too, I suppose, but in the States particularly, they have things like the Nielsen ratings, where they, you know, the TV programs, you know, they get the ratings every week, and some programs, you know, they get canned or you know, cancelled because they haven't been hitting their ratings. But well, one of the shows that got cancelled, the, the guy on the show said, you, you know, maybe we weren't getting the ratings that night, but people were watching us on catch-up. And, and I think you're right, people's habits have fundamentally changed. And I'm not sure whether you can really these days justify, you know, say a, a program, you know, have ten people watching that program that night, but how many people watched it later on, you know, on catch up? I mean, I never watch anything live, pretty much now, unless and, and, it's a, unless a, a it, genuine live event. Yeah. And unless it's a live event, football, yeah, the foot, Olympics, yeah. you know, that kind of thing, yeah. where you want to sit down and see it in the moment. Um, but for me, maybe it's just the way I work. But for me, I time shift everything. You know, my yeah. my Sky Plus, it's a one terabyte box, and it's absolutely full. 
and there's stuff that I'll probably never ever get round to watching on there. <laughs> I've got stuff but, that's been there for three years and I haven't got around to watching it yet. But, that, <laughs> but, but I also don't like, I also can't stand adverts. I won't sit through adverts. I refuse to. So um, there's no reason why I time shift. It's so that I can get rid of the adverts. Yeah, and, and look at look at products you. that are coming out, such as the Hopper in the States. You know, this is technology that gets rid of the adverts for you. Mm. I mean, that's... Well, in America, that's vital because you know yeah, it's like watching TV in the States I mean, <laughs> It's bloody awful. There's yeah. so many advert breaks. You, they like have it... That's, I always wonder why American TV shows have that cult, uh, have a short segment at the beginning before the credits, and I've realised now it's that they have they throw an advert break in <laughs> before yeah. they even they even roll the credits. Yeah, it's either before the credits or just after the credit after roll, the and, credits, and it's yeah. straight into an advert. But getting back to the smart TV side of things, I think that works. Video on demand, it really does work. More and more TVs now have wireless, so it's nice and easy to set up if you've got a router. Um, you can get that content from the BBC ITV Channel 4, 5 on demand. It's all there. Um, you you have it on your Skybox or your Virgin Box as well, so a lot of people are time-shifting stuff. So that makes sense. The thing on the tablet, moving uh, you know, your content onto the tablet to go and make a cup of tea or whatever, yeah, okay, it's, it's neat. You can show it off to your mates now and again, but would I use it? Probably not. Um, Skype. Now, I think Skype is useful. Um, yeah, definitely. Skype video calls with your TV. My parents live in Spain, and uh, when I've been reviewing a TV that's got that feature, it's really handy. You know, it's really nice just to bring them up and chat, sat on the sofa, you know, comfortably. Uh, it's a feature I, I, could, I would definitely use on a fairly regular basis. Yeah, but I guess what we're getting at, at, at the end of the day is that there is useful stuff there if it's video related or, or what the TV is supposed to do and it's just expanded then it'll be popular it's worthwhile having on the TV then you get into games and other things and applications and so on and the problem that TV manufacturers have got is that the vast majority of people uh, who have a smartphone or a tablet they're going to use the smartphone or the tablet for that and like I said before um, if I'm watching something on the TV I usually have the tablet sitting in my lap so I can look at emails or Twitter or whatever. You know, that's my second screen. It's it's not on the TV, uh, and I think that's a problem that all the TV manufacturers are gonna have is is trying to get people out of that habit. And I and I think they're fighting a losing battle. I think where they can make smart TV work is by incorporating the tablet sitting in your lap with the TV. Yeah. Um, and I've I've noticed some manufacturers start to do that. The, there's some applications like ZBox, which um, will recognize your Skybox and give you listings or what's hot and what's on. And it's just a case of tapping it on the screen and it changes channel for you uh, without you having to pick up the remote or whatever. And you can see the latest tweets and that kind of... That is useful, but that's tablet-based. So I think it's... If smart TV is going to develop, it has to bring the tablet and the smartphone in more because that's what people are second screening on. They're not second screening on the TV. The other thing I'm not never quite understood, given that we've just spent five minutes talking about how terrible the sound is on TVs, is the emphasis they place upon streaming music to them. I mean, why would you ever want <laughs> to do that? Ever. <laughs> uh, other than because I have to, to test it. Um, I would never do that out of choice otherwise. Uh, and, and I'm not quite sure why they place so much emphasis on that because I'm thinking, well, who, who would stream? Well, maybe it's a, maybe it's a fallback to the music channels, you know, MTV that kind of thing. Because I'm sure there's lots of people watch MTV and and so on on the. Well, I've watched stint. MTV. There's no music on it anymore. It's all programs. <laughs> <laughs> you have to select MTV Music nowadays. Oh, I see. Otherwise, it's all teenage pregnancy rubbish and all the rest of it. But. Going back to back to the day, a lot of people used to watch MTV and so on, and and I think that's a throwback to that. And if you've got a decent sound system, then you know, grand, have a have your your music on. But I think more people nowadays use Spotify and that kind of thing. But Spotify through your TV, unless you've got a decent sound system, I agree with you. It's if it's on a flat TV, thin TV, then it's pretty useless. It's, well, nothing, there's very little I could add to it that hasn't already been said. It's an answer to a question that I didn't ask, uh, fundamentally, is my big issue with it. And also, at once, it, when you look at, when I look at it from, from a, you know, again, from an outsider perspective, it's an amazing combination of the startlingly ambitious and the incredibly unambitious so there's all sorts of, as you say, there's all sorts of ways of accessing websites. And no matter how slick you make it, 
it always seems like a, a, a sort of, you know, secondary effort. And at the same time, correct me if I'm wrong, but none of these platforms appear to be open. You can't then have an enthusiastic man sat in a darkened room somewhere, have a brilliant idea and make it available to other people to, to, to add to their to their smart TV platform. No, they, they do have developer kits and uh, a lot of manufacturers this year have actually been um, putting stuff out to the v- development community in in a way to try and get around that, I think. Um, I have certainly know that uh, Samsung have done it, LG have done it, where they've, they've given developers... Um, you know the opportunity to come and develop stuff for their smart TV systems, but I don't know what the the effect of that has been up to this point. Well, I mean, it it that sounds, if nothing else, like a step forward. It it's you know let's sort of be honest with ourselves. Really, really great ideas. Sometimes they come from monolithic corporations. That's that's you know the way it goes. But more often than not, it's you know somebody sat on their own somewhere goes why don't we try that and then you know it may be that the thing that makes smart tv suddenly lurch into life and be be useful is out there but we we just don't know what it is yet and it will require as much open platforms as is possible to do because i very much doubt it's going to be it's going to be a very large organization that suddenly works out what it is yeah you're very large organizations and not very open platforms uh, a lot of people are still sitting on the sidelines, I think, waiting for this mythical Apple TV. Not the little box they sell at the moment, but, you know, a TV made by Apple um, that is going to in some way be a quantum leap in terms of how you interact with your television. Um, now, whether that will ever happen, I don't know. There's been rumors, for, well, since Steve Jobs died, basically. Um, and we've, you know, Phil and I have spoken to uh, the manufacturers at various events and you know, their view has always been that the thing that's probably stopping Apple from doing it is that uh, yes, they could create some fantastic all singing or dancing inter- interface, but you know, it, for it to be a TV, it has to have a tuner. Um, otherwise, it's not really a TV; it's just a monitor. Um, and actually, putting a tuner in is a lot more difficult than they think it is. Well, the so. the, the other argument that I've seen online, and which kind of makes sense more, maybe in the states than over here, is is also copyright and um, uh, distribution deals and so on. You know, um, they, c- they can make an impact in the market that Apple are in at the moment, but uh, we all know what the film and TV business is like when it comes to uh, copyrighted material, distribution, that kind of thing. We've seen some moves with Netflix uh, starting to produce their own content now. Uh, yeah, that, I just saw a trailer for House of Cards. Yeah, so, um, so that's starting to move, but... You know, when it comes to TV, when it comes to film, there's so many fingers and so many pies and so many interests. I think that's where Apple are falling down because, you know, you need the content on your on your smart TV. And this is maybe where all the manufacturers are coming a bit, a bit stuck because it's just such a complicated market to get into. It's not yeah. like, you know, you saw the hassle that Steve Jobs had in setting up iTunes and how long those deals took and, and you know we don't know how many brown envelopes were passed between people and that kind of thing to get that off the ground because of the copyright thing and I think the studios at, at that moment in time you know the, the music studios were and labels were, were pushed into corner because of the whole piracy thing and, and um, they were screaming out for something legitimate that's maybe why iTunes was as successful as it was but you got to think just how murky the world of TV and film and copyright and distribution and all that kind of thing is. And, you know, that's got to be putting a lot of stress on these smart TV platforms. You know, how do you get the content on there? Hmm. I also, from the Apple perspective, iTunes as it exists in 2013 is a, uh, is to me a sort of, you know, it's a warning shot that, when I mean because iTunes has to do so many different things, uh, it, it you know it is not slick. It I, I I find it a hateful piece of software and avoid using it wherever humanly possible. And that applies on both PCs and Macs. I mean I know it, I know it doesn't work at all on PCs, and but I don't consider it to work significantly better on Macs. And you know when you start thinking about as you you know you've touched on with you know integrating your platform bits with other people's bits and doing multiple requirements at the same time i I think it's you know an indicator that it might not be uh you know that 
Apple might certainly change, might sort of move the game forward, but I, I don't necessarily think it's going to be a night and day exercise, even if the even if this you know this product ever does appear. So, smart TV um, as it stands at the minute, are we for it or against it, or are we going to sit on the fence and see how it develops? Ed, uh, from my perspective, Phil, my next television will undoubtedly have it. I'll probably look at it once or twice, but I suspect it is unlikely it will become a meaningful part of my existence. Steve. As a method of delivering video, absolutely, I'm all for it. Um, the rest of the stuff, I, I almost certainly would never use. Uh, and I've got to say for myself, um, I've got a smart TV and I've never used the smart functions on it. Uh, the reason for that is that um, I actually find the catch-up stuff on Sky good enough for what I need at the minute. And I time shift a lot of stuff. Um, and it comes along without all the, the use, useless apps and, and that kind of thing. So... And I get Sky Go, which we forgot to mention, actually. Um, I actually feel like I'm getting something for my subscription nowadays because I could be... <laughs> nice change. <laughs> I could be anywhere in the country. If I've got my iPad and a Wi-Fi connection, I can watch Sky TV and I can watch the movie channels, the sport channels. You know, Everything that I subscribe to, I can watch on it. And I find that really useful. So um, we've gone over time this evening uh so my thanks to ed and steve for uh, tonight's podcast thanks guys cheers phil and uh, don't forget uh, we release a podcast every uh, week of the month on the 7th is the movies podcast on the 14th the games podcast 21st the home cinema podcast which you're listening to and on the 28th uh, the podcast extra and all I need to do is remind you the Bristol show it is this weekend uh, from the 22nd to the 24th and look out for our coverage on the front page next week if you can't make it along and also Steve is heading off to Amsterdam next week for a Philips launch and then there's a Toshiba launch as well just after yeah, that mid-March mid-March so we've got lots more product uh, being released lots of talking points so coming back and join us again for the next home cinema podcast which will be on the 21st of march and until then this is phil hinton saying thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon the av podcast was presented by phil hinton original music by andrew bassett and richard cosgrove the av podcast was mixed and produced by phil hinton and the senior producer was Stuart wright all content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only the av podcast is copyright m2m limited